Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, if I had to think of one Bible verse that comes to my mind in these days in which we're living, it would be Matthew 24, 37. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. And I just think that we are living in that time, Rick, where it's much like the days of Noah. It certainly is, Jimmy, at a time where God chose to punish the entire earth for their wickedness. And we look at what's going on in the world today, and we chronicle it, and we uh, document it on this program. But you see all this stuff that is taking place in the world today. That scripture is pointing towards the second coming of Jesus Christ. Yes, and before the second coming, there's a seven-year period of time called the tribulation period. And before that, there's the rapture of the church. So if we're getting so close to what looks like the second coming, how much closer are we to the rapture of the church? Well, we have our broadcast partners with us again today, Ken Timmerman, David Dolan, Israel Madad. Of course, Israel Madad and David Dolan will be talking about the positive aspect of 75 years of Israel being a nation. Rick, you and I have been through several of those celebrations. I can remember back the 60th, the 65th. So we have been there during those celebrations, and we know what it's like. R.C. Murrow of prophecytracker.org will be with us today. He'll be talking about the central banking digital currency, what's happening there. And, of course, the Legacy Series with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, starting a new series on Islam. Well, let's get started, Rick. We've got a lot to cover with our first broadcast partner, Ken Timmerman. Well, Ken Timmerman joins us. He is our guest expert on geopolitical affairs. He joins us often. He is an author and an analyst. You can find out more about him and his books that he's written by going to KenTimmerman.com. Ken, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Rick. It's a pleasure. Ken, over the years, we have played the game, Where in the World is Ken Timmerman at? Where do we find you? I don't think you're at home now. Where do we find you now? No, I'm in I'm in California, uh, out in the uh, Inland Empire, doing a speech tomorrow with the Salem Radio, and then I'll be Monday in Los Angeles uh, doing an event with the Museum of Tolerance, the Simon Wiesenthal Center. Well, you certainly don't stay in one place very long. Seems like you have some interesting engagements. We will keep track of that. I know, like I said, we can find out more about you by going to KenTimmerman.com. We can find out about these events that you hold. Well, let's start off our geopolitical look around the world, and we're going to start in Ukraine. President Xi from China, off of his success of being a peacemaker or at least peace negotiator in Saudi Arabia, he's now working in Ukraine with President Zelensky. You know, what I think is going to be interesting to see here, Rick, is whether President Xi is doing this of his own accord or if he is doing this uh, as a front man for Vladimir Putin. As of now, I tend to believe he's doing it of his own accord to enhance China's status around the world. As you say, coming off of that uh, agreement between uh, Iran and, and Saudi Arabia, which resolved many, many years of hostilities between the two countries, uh, Xi now feels that diplomacy uh, is something that he can succeed. And this is the first time that he and President Zelensky have ever had a long phone conversation. The reports that we've seen so far are that it lasted well over an hour and that uh, President Xi was pushing Zelensky to negotiate. He offered him a carrot 
from what I understand, and that was China will be there when it comes time to rebuild Ukraine. But he also brandished a stick. And the stick was that if you don't sit down with Putin, if you do not negotiate, we could start to deliver weapons directly to Russia instead of just allowing Iranians or others to do that. Look, I think we're going to have to see how this plays out. But uh, Ukraine is having problems with their offensive that is still in the works, we're told, uh, in Crimea. They're having problems rounding up recruits. Young men are fleeing conscription. They don't want to get drafted. They realize they're getting thrown into a meat grinder. They're just cannon fodder, if you wish. They're also going to have to train these new recruits on new equipment coming from the West, from Germany, from the United States, from Slovakia, from Poland, from all throughout NATO, and it's different standard equipment. And they will be facing Russian troops that have been training for the past six to eight months, as well as these Wagner paramilitaries. These are people who came out of the Spetsnaz, out of Russian special forces. So they are highly trained. It's not going to be easy for Ukraine. And it may just be that Zelensky is taking a second look at all this and perhaps peace looks better than war. Well, it's a very interesting test case as well. We've talked about China's growing influence. We talked about it last week on this program, how China has been growing in influence around the world, and it seems like America has been waning. And we look at this situation, President Biden has very much staked his reputation to the fact that he is going to bring victory to Ukraine, bring victory for Zelensky. Now, President Xi is looking at it slightly differently, and it's going to be interesting to see who wins this battle, isn't it? Well, and that's exactly the right way to frame it, Rick. Zelensky has to make a choice now between Biden, who so far has supplied him with $113 billion worth of weapons, or Xi, who promises perhaps to rebuild the country, which could cost many times more that amount and something that the United States have never pledged to do. You know, I have a problem with world leaders uh, like the Palestinians uh, and the Iranians, uh, the, the Iranians who are always willing to fight Israel to the blood of the last Lebanese, the Palestinian to the blood of the last, uh, you know, child martyr. And, and now Joe Biden ready to fight Russia with the blood of the last Ukrainian. I have a real problem with that ethos. Well, we've talked earlier about the way the Biden administration handles Russia and their foreign policy there. I'm still concerned, Ken. I'm still hearing things that say that even after all that has taken place now, President Biden and the Biden administration are still trying to negotiate a nuclear deal with Iran. Well, I think that's true. And even Tony Blinken, his denials of ongoing negotiations, they are given the lie by the Iranians themselves who say that the negotiations are continuing quietly, but they're still talking to the Americans and they still think that they can reach a deal with the Americans. Look, we are kind of playing this both ways right now. The Treasury Department has uh, enacted a significant number of new sanctions on Iranian officials, Iranian companies, companies manufacturing drones. Uh, they have identified the heads of the Revolutionary Guards Intelligence Office, something that they had not done publicly before, and accused them of attempting to kidnap or kill opposition leaders and people who are sympathetic or helping the opposition. They have made threats to me in the past. They've identified these people now publicly and put them on a sanctions list as well. So on the one hand, you see the Biden administration trying to ramp up a little bit of pressure on Iran. On the other hand, they're letting them access frozen oil money in South Korea and elsewhere, and they're still talking to them about a nuclear deal. I think this is absolutely insane. Under President Trump, the United States had the Iranians on the verge of economic collapse 
political turmoil. And now the political turmoil has continued, but they've been able to get fresh money in because we've been relieving sanctions on them. And I think it's a horrible mistake. Well, we followed the Iranian story quite closely on this program, and it is certainly a concerning issue if that is what is indeed going on. Well, there's another story, and this one I wanted to ask you about as well. I don't know if it was legitimate or not, but there was a story that Ukraine tried to assassinate Vladimir Putin. A uh, very, very interesting account. It comes from a Ukrainian uh, journalist who is reportedly well-connected to the Ukrainian intelligence services who claimed that they launched a drone, a UJ-22 drone, I have never heard of that before, that had an 800-kilometer range, that they sent it into Russia. They were planning to attack Putin as he was inspecting a, a military suburb outside of Moscow, and apparently it fell short of its target and was actually you know, found on the ground. Pieces of it were found on the ground. So it does look like it's a real story. The Russians have not attempted to retaliate at this point. Of course, they don't have to specifically since they're bombarding the Ukrainians day in and day out. So, you know, one more piece of retaliation would make any difference. But it's interesting to see that the Ukrainians, if this is a real story, had the intelligence to know where Putin was going and then to be able to try to target him with a drone. I'd like to know who made that drone, who who has built this UJ-22 drone. Just another question. I don't know if you could answer this, but would that intelligence have been assisted by the United States, do you think? Well, there you go. We've been giving them an awful lot of intelligence so far. And if the United States were to have given intelligence leading to the assassination of a foreign leader, uh, that frankly would violate so many statutes, I don't have enough paper to write them on. Well, Ken, all these issues are concerning, and uh, we appreciate you keeping up with the geopolitical world. I'd like to move away from geopolitics just a little bit, but still related in the context. And Jimmy and I have been talking, as many of our listeners will know, and as you know, Tucker Carlson, a popular political pundit on Fox News, was let go last week. Now, I don't necessarily have an opinion on that, but before he was let go, the night before, he gave a speech. And it's very interesting. I wanted to get your take on it. It was not as he saw the world. It's not Democrat versus Republican or it's not left versus right, but it's good versus evil. And that's something that we talk about on this program often. Uh, Absolutely right. You know, I've known Tuck for a number of years. We won an award together in 2011 from Accuracy in Media, and I've always had a a great deal of affection and respect for him. The the speech that he gave at the Heritage Foundation was very, very interesting because he essentially was going through his own mea culpa and saying, look at all the horrible things that I supported these years ago, the war in Iraq. It was terrible. Now, I happen to disagree with him on that, but nevertheless, he was giving this mea culpa saying, I too had been sucked in to this corporate media, we used to think that the arguments that we had in this country were Republican versus Democrat, right versus left. But Tucker made a very strong case in the speech that it's actually right versus wrong or good versus evil. When we start killing babies after they've been born or right up to the time that they've been born, this is infanticide. When we talk about mutilating children and changing their sex when they are minors, this is just absolute evil. It is unspeakable. And these things, he argues, and I agree with him on this, have taken on the allures of a religion. This is the cult of death that we see proposed mainly by the left in this country, but it is also evil. And Tucker said, and I agree with him 100% on this, it is about time that we call it out for what it is. God is going to punish us for letting this happen to our country.
Very interesting monologue. And again, that's something we've been talking about on this program. Kind of echoes what he was talking about there. Well, Ken, thank you so much for checking in on the West Coast. We hope you have some great meetings out there, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much, for It's always a pleasure to catch up with you. God bless. Thanks, Ken. Well, we have to take a break, and when we come back, we'll be talking about the 75th anniversary of the Nation of Israel, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Neighboring countries and international bodies push for peace as chaos reigns in Sudan. At least 512 people have been killed in nearly two weeks of conflict between the army and a rival paramilitary force. Fadi Sharia with the MENA Leadership Center says, It's a civil war. The whole country is being affected and Christians are part of the, of the whole country. We have received reports saying that we don't have food. People are really starving. 70% of hospitals in Sudan now are not working. As two generals and their forces fight for control of the country, there's no one left to protect the citizens. Home invasions and looting are rampant. Now that you know, what will you do? Pray, pray, pray. Please pray for no harm will happen to the church and that the church will take responsibility as a light and soul for the nation in Sudan. And Mission Cry has had a hard time getting their shipments of repurposed Bibles and Christian books into Liberia. However, Reverend Jason Wolford, president of Mission Christ, says the Lord recently opened gospel doors through a new ministry partnership. This one's unique as we are partnering with another ministry who's sending medical equipment. And because they are sending the medical supplies in, we're able to add half of the container with Bibles and seminary and Christian authored books. These good quality used Bibles and Christian books will be distributed in Liberia free of charge. Want to get involved? We've had business or individuals or churches sponsor an entire container or just portions of it. And we're stepping out in faith for our brothers and sisters in Liberia, for those that are in desperate need. Thanks for listening to Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. This month, Transworld Radio is offering a free 30-day devotional written by TWR President Lauren Libby called Get Hope. It's meant to encourage you through scripture and help you meet life's challenges. Sign up for free when you click on the banner ad at missionnews.org. That's missionnews.org. I'm Ruth Kramer. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. Well, this is our Middle East news update, and this week we have joining us, as he always does, journalist Dave Dolan. Dave, thank you for joining us. It's good to be on your program, Rick. Well, David, this week Israel celebrated its 75th anniversary of the founding of the nation back in 1948. We talk about that quite a bit on this program as being such an important prophetic event that took place. Well, Israel celebrated the 75th anniversary of that moment that they became a state. But David, this year is a little bit different because of the political background, isn't it? Well, Rick, there's always a lot of politics in Israel. It uh, is part of the bloodstream there. But it is definitely heightened this year with the new Netanyahu government, the most right wing in Israel's history, as uh, is pointed out all the time. But it is true. And of course, the first thing they dove into was a major reform of the judicial system in Israel, weakening the justices roles very much, strengthening the government's role. 
all sorts of uh, other side issues connected to that. But it is very controversial. And Thursday night, we had a pro-government rally just after Independence Day. Ynet and others estimated over 200,000 supporters of the government showed up outside the Knesset. Prime Minister Netanyahu did not speak to them, but the security minister, Ben Gavir, was there and gave a fiery speech. He said, we were legitimately elected by the people, 64 seats in the Knesset uh, majority, and we have the right to govern. And he said, we will win this fight. The justice minister who proposed the changes spoke as well, Levin, and he said the same thing, basically. Uh, Earlier, we had the torch lighting ceremony that I spoke about last week when uh, Memorial Day for fallen soldiers and terrorist victims ends at sunset and Independence Day begins uh, the next second, basically. And we had the opposition leader Lapid boycott that as he said he would. We had a taped speech from Benjamin Netanyahu. He extolled the country. He said, we've come through many wars. We've overcome all sorts of obstacles. Let's not forget we rose out of the ashes of the Holocaust three years after the war. Of course, Israel was declared a state, and uh, we've made the desert bloom. So uh, very positive statements. But while that was being played, there was a counter demonstration outside of Mount Herzl where that was held. Uh, People started singing Hatik for the national anthem to drown out his a speech. So, um, you know, a lot of tensions, but no um, fisticuffs, at least not many. There's a few clashes here and there, but nothing too great. And the rally for the government, very large and much larger than many people expected. And there is certainly uh, a lot of support for the government, just as there's obviously a lot of opposition to it. But we've been hearing mainly from the opponents. And now the government is sponsoring some of these pro Uh, judicial reform rallies. Well, David, talking about the 75th anniversary of Israel, I have some interesting reports from two different multinational organizations, the European Union and the United Nations, both recognizing the 75th anniversary of Israel, but reacting in very different ways. Can you talk about those two stories? Yes, the European Commission president, who's from Germany, Ursula von der Leyen, made a speech in honor of Israel's 75th birthday. By the way, Rick, it was just turning 33 when I moved there in 1980, (laughs) uh, but now 75. She said, we celebrate 75 years of a vibrant democracy in the Middle East and et cetera. And then she mentioned that Israel has, quote, made the desert bloom. Well, that set off the Arab world, the Muslim press, social media accounts condemning those statements. The official statement from the uh, Palestinian Authority said it was inappropriate, false, and discriminatory. Uh, It said that she was using colonial rhetoric, and we often hear that from proponents of a Palestinian state, that Israel is a colonizer. I pointed out in my first book, Holy War for the Promised Land, which I'm just rereading, that a colony is something set up by people from somewhere else, usually another continent, where they weren't there before at all. They have no historical roots or ties to it. That would be uh, white Europeans settling in the northeast of what became the United States. We even called them the colonies in those days. Uh, That would be Dutch and other Europeans going to South Africa and setting up a white enclave there, a place they had never been before, had no ties to. Jews going back to Israel, 
I mean, this is for 3,000 years, their ancient homeland. Jews going to Hebron? Uh, well, that isn't colonialism, but indeed, the other statement was from a UN official, Francesca Albanese, who's known for her anti-Israel attitudes. At a gathering in Europe, she said Israel is an apartheid state. It conducts ethnic cleansing, and she used the word colonies. She said all of the uh, Judea and Samaria, all of the West Bank is colonies, which are war crimes. And she said, I will continue to push for Israel to be prosecuted on these war crimes. Well, like I said, Jews going to Hebron, where their patriarchs and matriarchs are buried for thousands of years, Jews going to the Temple Mount, the center of their faith, these are not colonists. This is not an apartheid regime. Those are ridiculous statements. But a survey in the United States by the University of Maryland, Rick, this week found that 44% of Democrats who had an opinion one way or the other agree that Israel is a apartheid or a state that uh, supports segregation similar to apartheid, and they support the boycott, uh, disinvestment, and sanctions movement. Now, the number of Republicans was half that, around 20%, but it shows that support for Israel in the states is declining, and especially as the Democratic Party moves further and further to the left, it adopts these international left-wing positions, as it were, uh, concerning Israel. Well, David, we've come to accept these things from these large supranational organizations such as the UN when we look at those places and we see anti-Semitic strains going through them. But coming from America, who has been one of the strongest supporters of Israel throughout its history, even beginning in 1948 and continuing on, and we've documented that in several of the documentaries that we put together. But it's very concerning that that support is starting to slip I will look at one instance that took place this week. Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, a potential presidential candidate in 2024, visited Israel and showed a lot of support. So, David, there is some fading support in America, but there is still pockets of support for Israel, isn't there? Oh, more than pockets, Rick. Uh, you know, I mean, again, that would be 80 percent of the Republicans that were interviewed either had no opinion or had a favorable, very favorable opinion of Israel. So that's a lot of people. Of course, DeSantis has a large uh, Jewish uh, vote in his state, and he's aware of that. But the fact that he would travel to Israel uh, for its Independence Day and give a speech there that was sponsored by the Jerusalem Post newspaper was significant. And like you said, it was very positive. He commended President Trump on moving the embassy to Jerusalem, on the Abraham Accords, on his policies towards Saudi Arabia, and he condemned the Biden administration on those same questions, saying they have weakened support for Israel, they've uh, ruined our ties with Saudi Arabia and other things. So it was a very pro-Israel speech. Of course, he was in Israel, but he is the uh, second behind Trump uh, leader in the polls to, to be the Republican nominee. And of course, President Trump remains a fairly pro-Israel, a little less so than DeSantis, I would say, but um, overall very much so. And of course, he did do the things that DeSantis pointed out. So it's a mixed picture. We've got to keep that in mind. But there is growing the Democratic Party, no question, opposition to Israel in the United States. 
Well, David, we'll keep those issues in mind as we go to the polls, both now and in the future, because as a believer and as a Christian, we feel on this program, and I'm sure you do as well, that that is a very important part of why we elect the people we do. Rick, let's talk about that for a second. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curse thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. This is the first of the four covenants that God gave to the Jewish people. Genesis chapter 12 and 15 are the passages in God's word that explain God will make the family of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob, the Jewish people, a nation. Remember, you could have a group of people wanting to be a nation. They may well have elected their leadership and even have a constitution, but that does not make them a nation. They must also have a piece of real estate in order to be a nation among the people of this world. Verse 7, the Lord appears to Abraham and tells him that the Jewish people will indeed receive real estate. This act by God prompted Abraham to build an altar unto the Lord in thanksgiving for that gift. This is the Abrahamic covenant, the promise of God to the Jews that they will be a nation among the other nations of the world. One final thought. Verse 3 sets up the biblical principle which says that those who bless the Jewish people, God will bless. Of course, the opposite is also true. Those who curse the Jews, God will curse. The Abrahamic covenant is absolute evidence that the Lord is not finished with the Jewish people. He has a plan that will be carried out by the Lord and his chosen people. In fact, everything that is happening in our world today is evidence that God's plan is about to get underway. When we come back, one more question to Dave about, Dave, you remember being in Israel and what it means to be there for the Day of Independence. We'll get your answer when we return, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr. Along with Rick, we're examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. And we're looking at the 75th anniversary of the state of Israel and it becoming a nation, beginning all the way back in 1948, this time. Well, David, we have one more question to ask you. And this one, I think, Rick, is uh, very important because you and I both have memories at the same time of previous times when we were there during the celebration of independence. It's very interesting. You said Israel was just turning 33, a young 33 years old when you went to Israel 
Now it's in the 75th anniversary of that prophetic historic event of the uh, the declaration of the state of Israel. If you could, David, just your thoughts on this situation on Israel's 75th anniversary and what it means both now in the world but prophetically in the future as well. Well, Rick, uh, when I moved there at the end of 1980, it was truly still a third world country. Um, it, the roads were fairly primitive. The transport system wasn't great. Uh, there was one TV channel only. People were just getting refrigerators, frankly, and television sets uh, right around then. Now, today, you've been, you've been recently, and I've been so many times and lived there 33 years. It's a vibrant, thriving, modern country with great infrastructure, great companies, uh, great transportation, great schools, great hospitals and universities, uh, a thriving land. And indeed, uh, as the UN President, Commission President said, it has made the desert bloom, just as the prophet said it would in the last days. And all these ancient uh, biblical names of cities and towns have come back to life over the past uh, 75 years, many of them in just the last 30 years in Judea and Samaria. So uh, it is a miracle in the desert, and I loved uh, living uh, most of my adult life in Israel, and uh, I hope to go back uh, fairly soon again. And, you know, I urge all your listeners to uh, take a trip there. And, of course, you guys take groups. I think that would be a great way to go. So um, it's a special place, a special land. It is the Lord's land. It is the promised land. It is it's Kadosh, the holy land. So God bless it and give it as much time as can remain before uh, the Lord returns to thrive and prosper, hopefully. Well, David, I agree 100%. And I just want to tell you, we appreciate you using your experiences. You were a witness to history, uh, history in the making, basically, there. And uh, we appreciate using your experience and your time coming on and keeping us informed on what is taking place in the Middle East, especially Israel. Thank you for doing what you do, David, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. It's my honor to do so, Rick. God bless. It's always great hearing from David Dolan, Rick, and hearing uh, his understanding. I still remember being with him back in those early days in 1984, 1985. And uh, then, of course, we were in Israel during some of those celebrations that we're talking about. I still remember the flyovers, the celebration for the nation of Israel. First of all, you go through Memorial Day where you're remembering the fallen and then almost instantaneously you celebrate, you switch to a celebration of Independence Day. And it's a great time to be in the land of Israel and uh, just to feel the presence there. Well, a uh, person I always think about and I always like to say, Rick, when uh, we have Israel Madad on, it's like the voice of Israel. When you listen to him talk, you're listening to, and he's coming from Shiloh. He's coming from his many years of experience there. And as you listen to him speak, it, that old sage himself really sounds like he's given us, and he does give us important information about what is happening in the land. So let's, uh, let's bring up Israel Madad. That's right, Jimmy. I've got Winky Madad with me here today. He is the former mayor of Shiloh, a frequent contributor to the Prophecy Today program, and he is a man who knows his history and his politics there. Winky, thank you, as always, for joining us. And thank you again for having me on. 
Well, Winky, the big story this week is Israel turned 75. Now, I have several questions involving politics, some things that are taking place on the Temple Mount that I would like to talk to you about. But before we get into all that, Winky, Israel turned 75. We had Dave Dolan on in the previous half hour, and he said when he first came to Israel, Israel was just turning 33. Now, I know you were born in Queens, you were born in New York City, but you moved to Israel, you made your Aliyah, and you made a commitment to live in Israel. So you've been in Israel. First of all, when you answer this question, tell us how long you've been in Israel and what the experience of Israel turning 75 means to you. Well, when I first came here and spent a year on a special program for Zionist youth leadership, Israel was 18 turning 19. So that sort of puts me way back there. Uh, And when my wife and I came to live here, we're basically 53 years uh, here as a married couple with children and grandchildren. So I guess we've seen a lot and experienced a lot about the state of Israel. You certainly have. And so as we are looking at what's taking place in Israel right now, Israel does face threats, internal And external, let's start with the external. As you look at Israel turning 75, where do you see the greatest threat externally facing Israel right now? Well, externally, we have two types of threats. One, of course, is an actual military development that has as its target the elimination of Israel as a state, as a country, as the Jewish state. And that, of course, is led by uh, Iran, most sinisterly, and of course we have a so-called Palestinian liberation movement that has that same goal uh, with another justification, but it's basically the same security existential threat. I don't think there's any other country in the world, even the Ukraine, where Russia claims only to want basically what they think Russian territory is, but not all of Ukraine, there's no other country in the world that's facing such a threat. And the second element of that external uh, threat, of course, is the so-called BDS movement, boycott, uh, disinvestment, etc., denial of the Jewish people's right to be a a national identity, and therefore it doesn't deserve a state, uh, things of that nature, I would call it the political or the ideological opposition to Israel. So we have both military and the ideological opposition as if we do not have the rights similar to Armenians, Cubans, Icelanders, whose territory is smaller than us, and yet they have a right to be a state and we don't. Well, Winky, as you look at Israel's right to exist, they have had to defend that right multiple times. And in general, when that happens, when those things need to take place in order to protect Israel, the country has come together. Well, now we're facing, and we've talked about it on this program many times, now we're facing an internal threat. We're looking at a political divide, and this is just my opinion, but this political divide is maybe larger than we've ever seen in Israel. What can you tell us about the internal threats to Israel at 75? Well, although, uh, and I'm sure the listeners know because they've been following us for years, that the Likud, or the, shall we call it, the nationalist right wing, with various coalition partners, has been uh, the head of government for most of the period since 1977. 
A few exceptions, but basically that's it. And you would think that they realize that there's a change in the electorate and that people are becoming uh, of a different political or ideological persuasion than the earlier days of the state when the socialist or labor parties were in power. Uh, but what has happened most recently is the latest Netanyahu government with 64 mandates basically has no center or left of center party in the coalition. And this is, and I can understand it, is, is something, is a stark message for those who always had the hope or thought they had the political know-how to get themselves into a government coalition. Netanyahu doesn't need them. He has 64, which is a remarkable number because recently it's always been hovering around 58, 59, 60. And I think that's upset them very much, and they're looking for issues and judicial reform or enlistment of ultra-Orthodox people or, or other issues. They're, they're drumming it up in order to make the division deeper than it necessarily could be or should be. And I think that's the remarkable internal thing that you're you asked me to comment on. Very interesting. The way it's being portrayed in the media over here, and I'm sure you're seeing it quite a bit there, is that it's the end of democracy. But this end of democracy is coming from a democratically elected government that is working within the democratic rules. Is that not correct? Yes, it's absolutely correct. And in fact, I was asked recently about that, and I said judicial reform, in essence, is part of the democratic process. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's one thing if Israel turned authoritarian and began to deny civil rights and, or individual rights, and that's part of the message that the anti-judicial reformists are pumping up into the media, but it's not true. Uh, anybody who analyzes the judicial system that we have realizes that the so-called dictatorship is that of the judicial authority. We don't have a constitution here, and the justices are taking more and more power unto themselves as an activist court. Uh, I'll just give you one example. There's a group here in Israel that wanted to have a Memorial Day ceremony with members of Arab families whose sons, basically, mostly, uh, were killed by Israeli troops defending themselves against terror, and the court allowed it. It doesn't make any sense to invite your enemies as, as much as you would think the human element is part of it. But the court says, well, yes. So, in other words, the government has no right to say, I'm very sorry, but families of terrorists are not going to come into Israel from the Palestinian Authority territories to have a memorial service. It's just not logical. But the court says, well, you can't deny them because we think it's a nice thing to do. Well, Winky, we'll continue to follow that situation there with the political internal threats to Israel. But let's move on to a subject I know is also near and dear to you, and that is the Temple Mount. We know that you are a proponent of a Jewish presence on the Temple Mount. In fact, you even lead Jewish tour groups on the Temple Mount. But I have heard that there have been stories of Jewish people being detained for small acts of bowing or even possibly praying on the Temple Mount. Have you heard about that, Winky? 
Well, of course, that's one of the elements that you would think, if I can link up the two issues, that the court would say, well, you're at a religious site. We admit that the Temple Mount is also a Jewish site. Why cannot Jews have some form of religious worship? So the court could say, listen, we don't want you blowing trumpets or the shofar inside. That's a, that's a very loud sound. Or we don't want you dancing. Or maybe even reading the Torah, you know, from, the, from its original scroll, not from a book. But silently to pray or silently to, to prostrate oneself very quickly. You know, I'll give you five seconds to get down on your knees and up. You know, you could, no, none of that is allowed because it bothers or it angers or the Muslims think it's provocative. That the court accepts. Uh, and the police have accepted that as part of their routine. No overt demonstrations of any form of religious worship or any or be, religious behavior. And we think that there's more than enough room, not only physically, but in terms of allowing things that are not disruptive or are not loud or, uh, or interrupt other people. And, and as you know, there's a lot of room up there, and you could be out of sight in the Temple Mount for most people, especially on the eastern side, and we don't understand why this is uh, an issue, simply uh, because the Muslims say it bothers us. Well, Winky, we talk about the Temple Mount on this program very often, and if we look at it, and stories that come out of the Temple Mount are not based in reality. For example, there is a story right now, uh, Israel was up there taking some electric wiring down that had been put up for Ramadan, and now they're saying, oh, this is a synagogue that the Jewish people are building. This is, could not be the farthest thing from the truth, but that's what happens when you don't let reality dictate the situation. But is it fair to say that the agenda and the news coming out of the Temple Mount is being pushed by a particular ideology? The short answer, of course, is yes. Not only ideology, but, but politics. I mean, I'm sure most of our listeners have seen, especially in Europe, I'm not quite sure whether has, the phenomenon has come to the United States, perhaps in Brooklyn or something like that, where you see masses of Muslims on the sidewalks or even in the streets, like in Paris, for example, during the month of Ramadan or other Muslim festivals, very demonstratively and very disruptively, if I might think so, praying in, in, in the public space, not in a Temple Mount place of worship, for example, or in a mosque or in Mecca, but, but in the streets of Paris or London. I've seen it outside the parliament. Uh, but that's okay, right? Or, or the Cordoba Cathedral is being demanded to revert back to a mosque. That's okay. That's not being provocative. So, so what I'm trying to say here, and through you uh, and to our listeners, if you smell hypocrisy, that one side is asking for something that they get themselves but won't give, then there's something wrong with the equation, and that's not equality of rights. Well, Winky, my final question, we've looked at what's taking place in Israel with the 75th anniversary, and then we talked a little bit about the Temple Mount, which just exemplifies the whole question of Israel's existence there in the Middle East, surrounded by Arab nations. 
I would like for you, somebody, again, who has been a witness to history with a biblical, with a uh, historical and biblical background there, can you tell us, uh, from your perspective, going forward, what is the nation of Israel's place in the world? Well, I would have to say that no matter how much Israel was established back in 1948, in the earlier years of the 20th century, by the majority of the people were, shall we say, secular Jews or less than religious in an observant sense, or even more. Obviously, the heart of biblical prophecy in Isaiah and Zechariah or as he probably says, Zachariah, if I'm not mistaken, or other prophets, is coming to fruition. Whether or not they intentionally try to do it, whether very simply this is what a national people do. And as we deepen our roots and continue to make the, the state of Israel work, not only economically and military, as we've been talking perhaps over the past few minutes, but in a spiritual, in a cultural, in an intellectual, in a historical sense, more and more we find ourselves following the path of the prophets. Hopefully, we will be able to continue on that path, having people being convinced of the justice of it, whether they are Jews or whether they are non-Jews, and see how the Jewish people, if it does follow that biblical prophetic mode or, or path, will only be, not only do good for Jews, but I think make a huge contribution for all of mankind. And if that is so, then we are worthy of being the state of Israel as the Jewish state of the Jewish people. Well, Winky, we appreciate the information that you provide our listeners. You always bring a great perspective based on your experience, your knowledge of history, your knowledge of Scripture. We appreciate you living there in Shiloh in the area of Judea and Samaria, coming to our radio airwaves and talking to our listeners. Thank you so much. Keep safe, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you for your blessings, and again, to you and our listeners, goodbye. Israel Madad is uh, really gives us the background. I feel like I'm in Israel when I listen to him, and you should too. I'm telling you, as much as I have spent time there over the last 35 years, over 200 times in the land of Israel, uh, Israel Madad is the voice that makes you feel like you're in Israel. Well, another voice that I'm bringing back to the program this week, Rick, is that our friend R.C. Murrow and R.C., uh, welcome back to the program again. Yeah, it's really good to be with you, Jimmy. R.C. Murrow has a website, prophecytracker.org. And if you want to find out anything, if you want to keep up on what's happening in the world, go to prophecytracker.org. R.C. manages it daily. R.C., there's so much. And before we went on air here, I was talking to you about how much is happening in the world. And we just can't cover everything, but we do have a worldview and understanding God's word helps us to understand why the world is acting as it is. But there are, are new developments with the coming central bank digital currencies that appear to show that they are already in the works. What could you tell us about that? Yeah, Jimmy, on uh, April 12th, 2023, the International Monetary Fund of the IMF 
held their spring meeting during which the Digital Currency Monetary Authority, DCMA, I've got a lot of acronyms for you, the DCMA, an entity that is new to me, uh, announced the official launch of an international central bank digital currency to strengthen the sovereignty of participating central banks that complies with the IMF. And there's another acronym to come. At the meeting, the Universal Monetary Unit, UMU, it's a money commodity that can transact business in any legal currency and function as a CBDC. And that was introduced at the meeting. Wow. RC, that is a mouthful. It's uh, Jimmy, it's, 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 it can be a little confusing, and I imagine it will be to some of our listeners, so I'm going to try to simplify as best I can. What was announced, the UMU, or Universal Monetary Unit, can attach SWIFT codes that facilitates orders between banks the problem is that prior to the UMU, SWIFT codes were slow and, and expensive. The new UMU digital payment system will be inexpensive and instantaneous. Mm. And not to be left out of the digital party, the U.S. Federal Reserve launched something called FedNow in February, a similar digital cross-country payment system that will go live in July. In fact, they're even taking applications from companies now. Wow. So is it fair to say that the Federal Reserve and the IMF have introduced digital payment systems that are changing how international trade is done? Absolutely. But let's also consider these payment systems, UMU and FedNow for countries, are precursors to the CBDCs for everyone on the planet for the purpose of buying and selling virtually everything cashless. You know, it's important to remember that it was the IMF who created a basket of digital currencies called Special Drawing Rights in 1969. The SDR was meant to function as a world reserve currency in case the U.S. dollar failed in the role. It was in 2016 that the IMF added the Chinese yuan to the basket, along with the dollar, pound sterling, yen, and euro. And since then, China has made no secret that their goal is to make the yuan a new world reserve currency with clear intentions to knock the U.S. dollar off its perch. Unfortunately, the West disregards this threat, saying that the yuan is too small. In fact, this past Thursday, Argentina, joining a growing list of countries, announced that it will no longer make payments in U.S. dollars, but would pay for Chinese imports in yuan, following France, who made payment for liquid natural gas in yuan for the first time this past week. Wow. And that is a topic we have followed with you for several interviews, namely the rise of the BRICS nations. That's absolutely correct. Since 2016, China has been building a power block along with the rest of the BRICS nations, Brazil, Russia, India, South Africa, with the intent of of backing their currencies with commodities of their individual nations. With the U.S. focused on climate change, equity and wokeness, What many in the West have ignored is that the BRICS group is bringing together oil-producing nations such as Saudi Arabia and Iran, Mm. who have formally requested to join the BRICS, thereby shunning U.S. petrodollar dominance in international trade. Now, to underscore the importance of that, on March 2nd, 2022, Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell announced that a second reserve currency may come soon. What Powell didn't say is that a new reserve currency will cause the way of life of every American to change and not for the better. Wow. R.C., this past week, I sent you an article I saw on Fox News that you said had an impact on the way you see CBDCs. Tell me why. Yeah, it sure did, Jimmy. The article, which is up on on Prophecy Tracker, uh, is titled, Biden administration is quietly planning for a future 
where you don't own money. Jimmy, after three years of posts and interviews, some several with your dad, mm. the thought that you don't own your money really got my attention. And on Wednesday morning, we got a taste of what that might look like. At around 6 a.m. each morning, I begin my day by first checking the activity on the website to make sure you know everything ran smoothly overnight. To my surprise, Prophecy Tracker had been down for over an hour. I placed a call to our hosting site to report the outage. I was surprised again when I was told I was number 10 in queue uh, to speak to a tech, which is very unusual. I was even more surprised 40 minutes later to find out that the outage was global. And all the while, those five words from the Fox article kept playing in my head, you don't own your money. If the internet goes down and you are denied access for, for being a dissident or bad citizen, you really will have no money. But that's not all. CBDCs will no longer be under the full faith and credit of the federal government, but under the full faith and credit of unelected central bankers. Now, that is a setup for the day a powerful religious mm. figure called the false prophet of Revelation 13:11 will have the authority to force every person regarding status to receive a mark on the right hand or forehead to be able to buy and sell. The preparations are almost ready, Jimmy. All we need now is a one-way ticket to meet Jesus in the air. <laughs> I like that. All we need now is a one-way ticket to meet Jesus in the air. That is for sure. RC, it is so very important that you keep us updated on this. And, you know, like I said before we started, we can't cover everything, but we definitely see a systematic world thought process. It's a systematic thought process of the beast and it's coming into place. And you mentioned the false prophet today, which is a part of that satanic trinity, Satan, Antichrist, and the false prophet. Uh, RC, we're getting close. And I think that we need to be prepared and doing every single day what God has for us in this world. Don't you agree? Oh, I really do, Jimmy. It's uh, it, The time feels like it's getting short. Uh, things are moving so quickly. I, sometimes I'm just amazed at the headlines I pull up each morning. Thank you, RC. We look forward to joining with you again next week. Keep us updated on this as we and I, you know and I we didn't even have time to talk about you know facial recognition. We have one of our listeners send in an article about facial recognition. I want to focus on that soon because pretty soon you're not going to need a credit card or a passport and and you will be able to just be recognized by your face in order to buy sell. I mean work. We're closely getting to that point. Thank you, RC. We'll look forward to being with you next time. Thank you, Jimmy. Good to be with you. God bless. If you want to keep up on what's happening in the world, go to prophecytracker.org. RC manages it daily. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, our Legacy Series with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, talking about the Islamic world. It's an old story, but it's a good one because it is so very relevant for the day that we're living. We'll be right back on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, we previewed the DVD last week, Destiny of America. Uh, so many people called us and wanted to get a copy of it. Somebody wanted 25 copies to give out to their friends. Why don't you give that number again about that Destiny of America DVD? 
Certainly was a great response, and we are excited to get that DVD out. It's so relevant. It was Dad's last video, Jimmy, and it's so relevant for today. Well, if you want to get it, we have a special offer. That special offer is this is part of a trilogy. That trilogy included Is the USA in Bible Prophecy and President's Politics and Prophecy, all dealing with the same subject matter. That's three videos. What we are doing, if you call our office, talk to Leslie, call at 423 825 6247 for a donation of any amount we will give you all three videos we want to get this information into your hands yes uh, very important to us in order for us to make that available to all of you well this week we begin a brand new study on islam islam is one of the largest religions in the world and it is now the fastest growing religion in our world today with almost 1.5 billion people who claim to be muslim We'll spend time in God's Word in our study, but we first need to give you some information about Islam and a definition of many of the words that we hear when we talk about this religion. The devastating attack on New York City and Washington, D.C. on September 11, 2001 has been etched in our minds as a reminder of what a false religion can bring to pass when it becomes radical. That's where we begin our study today. Our legacy series with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, a great timely study on Islam. Even though he did it years ago, it is still something very relevant for today. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the legacy series. I'm probably pretty certain that everybody in this room remembers where you were on that infamous morning. I was in Atlanta, Georgia, getting ready to go to preach at a uh, camp meeting. I was supposed to be the morning speaker. It was about... I guess nine o'clock. I was trying to hurry. I had no television or radio on because of the fact that at that point in time, I'm thinking about what I'm going to be speaking on, praying and getting ready. All of a sudden, I got a phone call from our son, Jim, who lives in San Antonio, Texas. He was uh, out jogging and listening to the news on his iPod as he was jogging. He heard about the situation, ran back home, and he called me because Judy and the children and I had lived in New York City for five years. And he told me when he got me on the phone, he said, Dad, did you know a plane hit one of the Twin Towers? Immediately, my response was, Son, please don't mess with me now. I have got to get ready to preach this morning. So, yeah, tell me what you want. Let's get it over with, son. A little bit smart like I guess I was. He said, Dad, have you turned on the television? I said, no, I haven't, buddy. What do you want? He said, turn the television on. I turned the television on and bap, second plane hit that other tower. It was almost surreal to me. And they kept playing it over and over again. I thought I was watching a made-for-television movie of some type. You see, having lived in New York City for five years... Uh, Judy and the children of I had been up in those Twin Towers numerous times. Every time a friend or a loved one or a family member would come, we'd take them, of course, to go up to the top of the Twin Towers and to watch that whole thing unfold. I'll never forget it. It's, it's embedded in my mind, as I'm sure it must be in yours. But that opened Pandora's box. The Islamic genie of terrorism was released never to be put back in the box. In my opinion, 9-11-2001 was the beginning of the end because that marked the time when the element who will be involved in the major conflict in the Middle East soon after the rapture of the church 
was in place, ready to operate. We're talking, of course, about Islamic terrorism. We're talking about the Islamic world. We're talking about exactly what we have all been watching over these last years and how it has only intensified and how the capability of being able to defeat this has slipped away from us, especially because we don't even have the courage as a nation to call it what it is. We've uh, changed the word terrorism and fundamentalist and terrorist to a different terminology recognized by our United States government. We have said to the world that we are not at war with Islam. We never have been at war and we never will be at war with Islam. I'm not sure that some of the leadership of this nation understands exactly what they're dealing with because the fact is whether we are at war with them, they are at war with us. And it's going to continue to be so according to the scriptures. What I want to speak on Islam in the end times. And I think that we need to be aware of how potent this enemy is and what can happen in the very near future. James Woolsey, who was the director of the CIA, not a prophecy teacher, not some kind of a radical, James Woolsey put out a report not too long ago from a brochure he found in the embassy at the Saudi Arabian embassy in Washington, D.C. This little brochure was basically focused on all the Muslims from Saudi Arabia that were living in the United States. And in essence, the bottom line on the brochure was that every Muslim had better be in America for one or two reasons, or you would be facing the death penalty. The first reason for being in America as a Muslim from Saudi Arabia was for the purpose of uh, developing a terrorist cell in the purpose of taking over this country. The second reason for being in America was doing something to bring support to these terrorist cells and what they are planning to do here in America and take over this country. In fact, that is the desire of all of the Islamic world. It's called a caliphate, and that is an Arabic word, which means dominion or world leadership or world control all under their God, Allah. And indeed, James Woolsey was trying to warn the United States of America, as has many others. The former ambassador to the United Nations, John Bolton, has been very outspoken as it relates to this particular subject. But yet we continue to watch all of these things unfold. Let me take a moment and give you somewhat of a profile as it relates to the Islamic world. There's some words that uh, you need to have in your glossary, in your vocabulary, so you can understand what we're talking about. Uh, for example, uh, there's a differentiation between the word Islam and the word Muslim. Islam is the name of the religiosity. Muslim is a participant in that religion. And so when you're talking about a Muslim, you're saying, well, this is a person who believes in the Islamic faith and follows all the dictates of the Islamic faith. There are five requirements to be a Muslim. The first one would be you have to make a confession that Allah is the only God and Muhammad is his last prophet. That has to be an absolute. You have to accept that. The second thing is you have to 
make certain that you're ready to pray five times a day. You pray facing towards Mecca, which is one of the three most important cities for the Islamic world. Mecca, Medina, both in Saudi Arabia, and the third most important city would be the city of Jerusalem. So you have to pray five times a day as it relates to uh, your constant relationship with what's going on uh, there in Saudi Arabia, which is the headquarters for the Islamic world. Uh, Thirdly, you must fast during Ramadan. It's an absolute essential that you fast during Ramadan. It's a 30-day fast period where the Muslim people will fast throughout the entire day from sun up to sundown, and then they feast throughout the evening and into the night. And I'm not trying to be facetious. That's exactly what they do because, first of all, the fasting and prayer is in thanksgiving for the giving of the Quran. The Quran is their holy book. The Hadith is a book that has the sayings of Muhammad in it. They're equivalent in superiority and leadership of the people and authority as far as the Muslim world is concerned. But for these 30 days, you have to fast during the day and pray and thank the Lord. Uh, Ramadan is the celebration of supposedly the angel Gabriel, the archangel Gabriel, giving Muhammad the Quran, their holy book. The fourth thing you have to do is give alms. Give as much as you possibly can for the cause. And then the fifth thing you have to do is make a pilgrimage to Mecca. It's called the Hajj, H-A-J. And uh, once you go there, you're supposed to do that at least one time during your lifetime. If you're physically capable of doing it, you make a pilgrimage to Mecca. You go there, you march around the Kahaba. That would be that big black stone in that stadium that you see there in in Saudi Arabia, uh, which is the location where they say that Abraham offered Ishmael instead of what the Bible says, Abraham offered Isaac on Mount Moriah in what is now the city of Jerusalem. So those are the five tenets of the faith. In addition to that, there has been added a sixth tenet by the radicals, and that would be Islamic Jihad. And the word Islam does not mean peace, by the way. It means submission. I'll tell you where it got its name from, the religion, in just a few moments as we look at the word. Uh, But Islamic Jihad means holy war. And there is a responsibility for every Muslim that they must be involved in a holy war. When we talk about uh, how they have overtaken the world, it was established, Islam was established in uh, actually 610 A.D., Muhammad was born in 570 A.D., 40 years of age. He received the Quran. He restarted the uh, the uh, religion of Islam, and that was the beginning of it. They started to move out and uh, try to conquer the world and evangelize, quote, quote, evangelize the world. They did not do that with the power of the Quran. They did it with the power of the sword, using it for whatever purpose they would have. It spread out of the Middle East, out of Mecca, into Turkey, and from there it had a base, and then it moved into Europe, moved as far as Spain, into the Balkans, which was the Basically, the Balkans was the door to the Islamic faith into Europe uh, before it was shut down and driven back into Turkey. Turkey is 98% Muslim today, and they play a key role in the Muslim world. In fact, Tayyip Erdogan, who is the prime minister of Turkey, who is a very radical Islamist, 
He was put out. He was mayor of Istanbul. And the military, who are custodians of the Islamic faith or have been in Turkey, uh, put Tayyip Erdogan out of office. He started a political party, a radical Islamic party. Uh, they came to power and they got the most votes in the parliament. When they got control of that, then they changed the constitution uh, with the purpose of allowing him to become prime minister. And uh, Tayyip Erdogan's whole desire is to become the pan-Islamic leader of the entire world. He has uh, gone into each and every one of the Islamic current countries and said he will come alongside of them and do whatever needs to be done in order to deal with the Jewish state of Israel. They have a doctrine called the doctrine of abrogation. And what they have done is they'll take the word of God, they'll use some of the elements of it, but they will change its teaching to accomplish and to pr- prove what they're trying to talk about. There's a thing called the house of Islam. Once a piece of real estate has been in and under control of Islam, then that is in the house of Islam, never to be uh, controlled or uh, operated from by any other people. For example, Israel has been under the control during the times of the Crusades in the 12th century. Uh, Islam came in, they came in, Saladin came in to, uh, uh, to Israel and he took control of it. And so that put Israel under the house of Islam. Now that the Jewish state of Israel is in place there and prospering to some extent. It's in the face of Allah, and that's one of the reasons they have to deal with this uh, nation of Israel, and that's one of the reasons that they hate the Jewish state of Israel so very, very much. Israel is in the house of Islam, according to the Muslim world, and that is an affront to Allah, the Islamic God. That's the reason the Muslim world hates Israel and wants to rid the Middle East of this Jewish state. In our study of Islam this week, we gave you an introduction to the subject with some definitions of words. Next week, we'll go to the Bible to study how the Islamic faith had its beginnings. Please join us for this very important study. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, Rick and I will take a look at the book right here at Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Neighboring countries and international bodies are pushing for peace as chaos reigns in Sudan. At least 512 people have been killed in nearly two weeks of conflict between the army and a rival paramilitary force. Fadi Sharia with the MENA Leadership Center says the civil war is affecting the whole country. Christians included. Pray for an end to violence in Sudan and pray that the body of Christ will demonstrate compassionate care as they help neighbors in need. Admission Cry has had a hard time getting their shipments of repurposed Bibles and Christian books into Liberia. However, the Lord recently opened doors. Through a new partnership, Mission Cry can piggyback on a shipment of medical supplies to send good quality used materials into Liberia. They'll be distributed free of charge into hospitals and seminaries. You can help sponsor Mission Cry's sea container shipment to Liberia. Find your place in this story at missionnews.org. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries, on Ruth Kramer. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. 
There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible Prophecy Student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we have been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, I started out the program mentioning the verse, Matthew chapter 24, verse 37. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. You know, the Lord had just told his disciples and those that were in attendance and it's a very profound prophetic conference in Matthew chapter 24, what would be the signs that would usher in the kingdom at the second coming of Christ? And as the Lord was concluding his discourse, he mentioned a very specific sign for people to look for as they awaited his second coming. Jesus mentioned in verse 37, as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. When we look at what's happening in our world today, as we listen to, we examine current events on the program today, I, I do see that we are getting closer to what I would say that second coming. But before the second coming is the tribulation period, that seven-year period of time, spoken of in Daniel chapter 9, spoken of in Matthew chapter 24, Revelation chapter 6 to 19 that tribulation period. But before all of that is the rapture of the church. But when we see these things in our world today, it seems as if we're getting so very close to the rapture of the church, doesn't it? It sure does, Jimmy. And just like you said, we're so close to the second coming as in the days of Noah. That is speaking of the second coming. Before that, the rapture of the church, when we were talking at Ken Timmerman, and we were talking about the battle of good versus evil. It's not left versus right, Democrat versus Republican, but a battle of good versus evil. And you just brought up, and we look as in the days of Noah, this began in Genesis, didn't it, Jimmy? In the Garden of Eden. And this is uh, the whole story of Scripture is God's redemptive plan because of what took place in the Garden of Eden. Yes. You know, when I think about, and especially, and we'll just bring that up, uh, one of Dad's favorite uh, people to watch on TV was Tucker Carlson. And Tucker gave a great speech, and that's probably the one, who knows, what got him released. But when you think about it, he said that this is a battle between good and evil. He says this is a systematic thought process that is worldwide. And I'm thinking that is what is happening. That is what's talked about in the Bible. And that's what going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, when Satan, his all out program of what he wanted to do was to bring God down, to bring the angels down and to bring God's creation of man and woman down. And that's been going on for 6,000 plus years, I believe in a literal interpretation of the days of creation. So I believe that we've been here for 6,000 years, a little more, a little less. But this is that period of time when Satan is 
really the prince of the power of the airs. He's reigning on the earth. His thought process is to defeat God. And we're seeing that happen in our world today like we have never seen it before. Jimmy, it's very interesting. When you listen to that speech by Tucker Carlson, he admits to having a very limited theological perspective on things, but he recognizes what's taking place in the world. Even with his limited kind of uh, background there, he recognizes what's taking place in the world. Of course, it's if you're, if you're paying attention, it's not hard to see what's going on. But I know one thing we do this program for, Jimmy, and we can tie this into the 75th anniversary that's taking place in Israel. We know that God had a plan. That plan began. He has a redemptive process that he's taking us through all the way through to the end of Revelation and the 75th anniversary of the Jewish state, the miracle of the birth of the Jewish state of Israel. It shows you that God's plan is in place. It's in Scripture. It happened just as Scripture said it was going to happen, and now it has a role to play in the future. So for me, that gives me hope and comfort that we are in the midst of a plan, even though it seems like chaos. Oh, yes, and I agree with you wholeheartedly, and that's why we study Bible prophecy. That's why we read God's Word, because we know that God has a plan for the Jewish people. We take it literally, and we understand that in this age, there's only one way to heaven, and that is through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, there's a great author, a great Christian author, A.W. Tozer. He spoke of Christians in the harvest field of ministry when he wrote, we are not diplomats, but prophets. And our message is not a compromise, but an ultimatum. And in the world in which we live, I think about those words often. We're not here as diplomats. We're not here to make everybody feel good. We are ambassadors from heaven as we are part of the body of Christ. But we have that role as a prophet of pronouncing uh, and telling people about God's judgment upon those that are sinners, God's plan of redemption, and when that redemption will take place. And Rick, as we do this, we need not to compromise. And there are a lot of churches, there are a lot of people today, and I just humble myself, I'm sure you do too, often we just do like Daniel did, we humble ourselves before our Lord God, we ask for wisdom, and we covet the idea of not compromising our lives as we are continuing that message of telling others about God's plan of redemption and how God's word gives us everything that we need to know in this period and the time in which we're living. That's right, Jimmy. I know one thing that Dad always said when you would come to him, if you wanted to have a discussion, come to him with the scripture. Don't come to him with your experience. Come to him with the Bible. Come to him with scripture. And that is what we are trying to do as we look at where we are in God's timeline right now. We're looking at it through scripture. We're not giving you our opinion. And then we're realizing, you're right, Jimmy, the Great Commission. What are we to be doing? We're supposed to be sharing this gospel in the limited time we have. That's another thing that prophecy does is gives us an urgency because we do have a limited time with all these things taking place in the world. Yes. You know, when you look at and uh, Jesus gave his 72 followers their marching orders for missions in Luke chapter 10. He gave them instructions about their mission and their conduct. He also gave them some very detailed and specific directions regarding the message they were to deliver. And as you share the gospel with people and the traffic pattern of your life, keep these two things in mind. First, the gospel is not just an invitation, it's an ultimatum. And secondly, the gospel is not about you, it's about God. 
And that's why we do this program, Rick, as we are looking and examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. It is to help to educate and edify the body of Christ. Thanks for joining with me this week, Rick. We look forward to catching up next week again as we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. My privilege, Jimmy. Looking forward to next week. Folks, with all that is happening in our world, we can't help but say, as our Father used to always say, with the things that we have seen today, the rapture can't be too far away. Maybe in the next instant. Let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Thank you.